you've got a Bible, I want you to grab your Bible and open it. Open your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 2. We are going to continue our series, God in the Valley. Habakkuk chapter 2, good luck finding that if this is your first time. It's a little tiny book. It's only three chapters long, and it is in uh, near the uh, end of the Old Testament. And so good luck with that. We're continuing our series in Habakkuk, God in the Valley. And I'm just going to jump straight in tonight, if that's okay. Is that okay with everybody? Okay, I'm going to jump straight in uh, tonight. The mission of our church is to be a, a kingdom church for Christ, for community, and for the city. And if we want to become a kingdom church, um, today's topic is something we all must not just be okay with, but must be something that we are great at. Look at your neighbor and say, you've got to be great at this. You've got to be great with this. I'm serious, this isn't just something that you and I can be okay with, that we can dance around, that we can flirt with, but this is something that we have to be great at. Our vision specifically for the city is a five-fold vision of being a church for the next generation, a multi-ethnic church, a church for underprivileged youth, a church for persons of need, and a church for church planting locally um, and internationally and globally. And hear me when I say this, specifically when it comes to being a multi-ethnic church, when it comes to be a church for underprivileged youth, when it comes to be a church for persons of need, the only way that we will do this is not only if we hear today's scripture, but if we practice today's scripture. Everybody. The only way is we, if we not only tolerate today's topic, but if we treasure today's topic, Okay. So consider this a trigger warning. We are getting ready to jump into Habakkuk chapter 2 on the topic of justice. It's amazing the way that God works in his providence and his sovereignty. It's, a way that God, it's, it's amazing the way that God just shows up at moments in your life when you need him most. Um, today's topic and today's scripture passage is unbelievably uncomfortable for many people. And I knew that it was going to be challenging, and I knew as I prepared this week that it was going to be significantly challenging for me. I get a text this morning from a good pastor friend of mine, and he sent me this, and he said, God woke me up last night with you uh, on my mind. I prayed from 3 o'clock to 5 o'clock for you, and I hope a power and presence rest on you today. And one of the things I prayed was that you would continue to be a voice for the minority and the marginalized, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, okay? It's amazing the way that God works and in God's providence as we're walking through scripture, this is where we find ourselves, all right? So are you ready? All right, look at your neighbor and say, are you ready? Are you ready, all right? Are you, I'm not gonna lie. Don't say I didn't tell you this was, this was gonna be easy. It's not gonna be easy you better be ready. Habakkuk chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, this is what it says. God responds to Habakkuk and he says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. That phrase is actually a little bit complicated in the original language. Some of the commentators aren't exactly sure what it means. Some of them think that wealth and greed is what he's talking about in this moment. But nevertheless, it says his greed is as wide as Sheol, speaking of the Chaldeans. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Verse 5 that you're reading right now is a segue verse that sets up the remainder of chapter 2. The context to remind you, or if you're new today, the context is this Old Testament prophet who lived over 2,000 years ago 
who is in a city in which the Chaldeans have invaded him, and there is injustice all around him. At every turn, he is plagued with injustice. No one is operating according to the way that God would have them operate, especially these Chaldeans. And it looks like God is not doing anything. It looks like God is a million miles away. And the Chaldeans are just ruining the city. The city is in ruins. And Habakkuk is an Old Testament prophet who is devastated by the injustice that he sees around him. He has had it with his city and he has had it with God. And one of the major themes that we see throughout the entire book of Habakkuk is this theme of justice. I'll remind you of a, first, of a couple of verses in the first chapter, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. Habakkuk says this, destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. He's saying this to God. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous and so justice goes forth perverted. He is devastated by the injustice that he sees around him. And he is pleading to God for God to show up and for God to do something about it. But it seems like God doesn't care. It seems like God isn't active. It seems like God doesn't want anything to do with Habakkuk or his situation. So he's pleading with God. And at first Habakkuk, um, or first God tells Habakkuk that this is actually part of God's judgment because God's people are not practicing righteousness and justice But now in this passage for today, God shifts his attention away from God's people to the invading Chaldeans. And some of you have been here and some of you have been waiting. Some of you have been anticipating, what's God going to do about it? Okay, so God is in the valley with Habakkuk, but what is God going to do about my circumstances? Has anybody ever wondered that? Has anybody wondered, are my circumstances ever going to change? Like how... Anybody ever asked, how long am I going to have to be in this stinking situation? Anybody? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But how many of you are in a stinking situation? And you just cannot wait for your circumstances to change. You say, how long, God? And maybe you're here tonight and you recognize that God is in the valley, which is the first step. If you missed the first uh, three sermons, you need to go back and catch up on those. First of all, God is in the valley with you. God is in the valley And then he's not only in the valley, but he's actually working in your life to actually change the circumstances. Now, we don't worship him because he changes the circumstances. We worship him in the valley regardless of what our circumstances are. But this is what we see in this moment is that God shifts his attention away from his own people to the invading Chaldeans. So what does God do about it? Here, God gives assurance to Habakkuk that God is going to respond to the injustice and the oppression of his people. We're going to see that God judges. God answers. Here in verse 5, he gives an indictment and a judgment against the Chaldeans because of their wickedness and because of their injustice. And he walks through five woes, five woes that he offers the wicked in a response to the Injustice And the woe, as you'll see throughout the entire passage tonight, a woe is a specific announcement of doom that's used specifically by the Old Testament prophets upwards of 41 times in the Old Testament. It is an announcement of doom that God is getting ready to offer. Here, here's what this, this means before we, before we jump into the five woes. Here's what this means. I, I love this. God will enact justice. He will. Sometimes you don't see it, and sometimes you don't feel it, 
But God is a God of justice. He will enact justice. God will judge the wicked. Trust me and believe me that God is vigilant and he watches over his people. He hears the cry of the oppressed and will rescue, which means we can be resolute that no injustice ever goes unpunished. No injustice ever goes unpunished. God will vindicate the righteous. You were supposed to say amen right there. I'll give you a verse and then you can say amen. Psalm 10, 17 and 18, it says this. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. And some of you aren't exactly sure what to do because you never heard a sermon like this before. Psalm 10, 17. Oh, Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. I love what we're saying. Our God is a lion. He is a lion. He's the lion of Judah. He is roaring with power and he is fighting our battles which is good news tonight, that we have a God that actually cares about justice. He isn't a wishy-washy God that is okay with what he sees around him and what we see around us in the world, but he's a God of justice who fights for us, which means if you have ever been a victim of injustice, I want you to know and to believe tonight that you are loved and adored by the God of the universe. You are afflicted. If you are oppressed, treated wrongly, unjustly, you are loved and adored by God. And I know that some of you tonight, you feel beaten and abused and neglected. I've heard a story of someone that's been coming to the bridge for the past few weeks and had a situation in which was an unfortunate situation with the people around her. And because of a tragic circumstance of being around some unjust people in a wrong situation she got taken advantage of. All because she is in the wrong place at the wrong time. She's been coming for the past few weeks and she has told us, she said, this is the first time that I've ever felt loved in a church. God loves you. And if you've ever been a victim of injustice or if you find yourself in a situation right now that seems unjust, I know that it is hard and unbelievably frustrating. And trust me when I say this, our God is for you. And he hears your cry, he joins you in your affliction, and he's fighting for you and will vindicate you even though you may not see it. And that is good news. It's good news. Psalm 89, 14 says this, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness, which is the Hebrew word has said, go before you. This is the very foundation of the throne of God is righteousness and justice. Now, before we dive into God's response and the five woes that he's getting ready to give for injustice, I think that it's important that we acknowledge and address a few things regarding the church and justice. To give you a little bit of a history lesson, a little over 100 years ago in America, in the 20th century, there was a huge controversy that had erupted in the church called the Modernist Fundamentalist Controversy. You could actually Google that right now. You could even go on Wikipedia and you can read about it. Essentially was a division within the church in America. Almost every major denomination had a split over this controversy. The controversy was called the Modernist Fundamentalist controversy. 
The modernists were a group of people, we'll put them on this side, they were a group of people that were for the needs that were around them. They were the most caring and loving people for the situations and the circumstances that were around them, but they tied themselves to a, you could call a liberal form of theology, which was like, they were like, I really don't think that the Bible is actually true. It's really not the authoritative word of God. We really don't, can't really say whether or not we should change the way that we're living, but we love people and we care about people and we're gonna be social justice people and we're gonna work for people that are around us. Well, some Christians, as you can understand, went nuts on that kind of idea to try to throw the scriptures to the side and not actually stand on God's word as authoritative. They thought anything associated to that, we cannot associate ourselves from. It was a knee-jerk reaction. And so what happened was the fundamental, fundamentalist movement of the 1920s began to establish themselves around fundamental truths of the faith and of God's word, but by so doing also dis dissociated themselves away from social justice or caring for those who were around them, those who were needy, those who were oppressed, those who were afflicted. And so you were cho chosen, you had to decide and you had to choose whether or not you were going to be over here with this group of churches or whether or not you are going to be over here with this group of churches. What would eventually happen is that every denomination in America virtually would split. You would have all sorts of different kinds of sects that happened within the various denominations. And you would be either over here with some kind of mainline kind of church or over here with some kind of evan evangelical kind of church. What would ensue for the next few decades in America would be a further and further chasm and distancing one's self from one tribe or the other. Which, by the way, do you know that America has a problem with tribalism? I mean, we, we, it, it's unbelievable. I think all humans do. We have an issue with tribalism. My people look like me, talk like me, act like me, vote like me, make the same amount of money that I do believe things like me, and so I'm going to hang out with these people and distance myself from anyone else who is outside of my tribe. That is completely ungodly. That is completely antithetical to the kingdom of God. Jesus comes in, and he steps into culture. He steps into the city, and he loves everybody around him. Believing what he believed and understanding what he believed, standing for justice, standing for righteousness, not giving up on any of that, but welcoming anybody into his community. It's it unbelievable. But what has ensued over the past generations in America, in your country, in the culture in which you swim, is a dichotomy in which you have to choose good theology or social justice over here. And I need to say tonight that it is a, that is a false dichotomy. And we don't have to pick and choose. It's, um, I had a conversation, I think it was last week, it was just a few days ago. It's really cool. Um, a journalist from the New Yorker reached out to me and said that she wanted to get together and to interview me. I'm like, hey, someone from the New Yorker wanting to interview me. I'm like, well, let me check with my uh, executive assistant and I'll get back with you to see if I could perhaps open up a time slot to be able to meet with you. No, it was, it was, it was, really, it was really incredible. She, she wanted to get together. She's doing a, she's thinking about putting together a book on Wilmington and specifically what happened in our history in 1898, and she got my name from someone, and she asked if we could uh, get together, and we had a fantastic dialogue on our city and the church, and I'm, I'm not joking you. I was laughing like half that she couldn't figure out why in the world that we would be so concerned about our city. She was like, like literally like 12 times, she was like, okay, but I really need to ask you, why, do, why does it matter to you? 
Like, what? And at, by the end of the conversation, I was just like, it's Jesus. All right, that's all I got for you. That's the only thing I, it's, it's Jesus. If it wasn't for him, I wouldn't give a rip. I mean, it's, it's about him. And she couldn't figure out, like, why we would, like, you actually believe the Bible and you teach the Bible, but you actually care about the poor and the people that are in your, I don't understand you. See, people have a hard time putting us in a box as a church. They're like, uh, that church over there, what, what exactly do they believe? It's hard to put us in a box because we don't fit in the boxes. And Jesus didn't either. Jesus didn't fit in the boxes. So here, 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 here's the issue. Here's the issue is we have to be um, very intentional about the way we look at Scripture and interpret Scripture and then act in the world in which we find ourselves in. And more layers that we put over the scriptures that influence the way that we act will ultimately affect the kingdom of God in the way that we accomplish the mission of our church. I love the way that Dr. Eric Mason, who is in Philadelphia, in his book, Woke Church, says it. He says it this way. The church in America is not awake to the reality of what's happening in communities across this nation. And we are missing out on our calling to shine the light into these places of darkness for Christ's glory. He says we're asleep to some of the realities that are happening in our culture. Paul David Tripp, fantastic author and writer, unbelievably solid theologian, had a transformation really in his life a few years ago, and he wrote this. Tons of books, tons of conferences. Half of you probably have been to a conference or read a book that he's written. Paul David Tripp, he says this. For all of my passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which has been accurate and faithful to the best of my ability, the gospel that I've held so dear has been in reality, get this, a truncated, truncated and incomplete gospel. But as I have taken time to examine the cross of Jesus Christ once again, I've been confronted with a very significant area of personal blindness. I am grieved that it took me so long to see this while being filled with joy that my patient and faithful Savior did not give up on me, but kept working to open my eyes, soften my heart, and give balance to my gospel voice. I have become deeply persuaded that we cannot celebrate the gospel of God's grace without being a committed ambassador of the gospel of his justice as well. He would go on and he would say this, there should be no community that is a more present, active, and vocal advocate for justice than the community that preaches the gospel of the cross of Jesus Christ. God makes his invisible justice visible by sending people of justice to advocate for justice to people who need justice. Just as he makes his invisible grace visible by sending people of grace to give grace to people who need grace. And here's what, here's what we have to, we have to be a church. You'll see this throughout the passage or throughout Habakkuk. You'll see this throughout the Old Testament. It's righteousness and justice. It's both. And God's throne, as we saw in the, psalm, the psalmist saying, that God, the foundation of God's throne is built on both. Now, I decided rather than to take 20 or 30 minutes to try to give you like a biblical understanding of justice, there's a video that's like two or three minutes long that does it way better than I could, okay? So here's a video I want you to watch on justice, on biblical justice, and I hope it's helpful for you. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. 
On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like, here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. The video actually would continue and go a little bit longer. You can um, look, it, look it up online. Maybe we'll post it online for you. Um, but that's, that's, that's the heart. That's, that's, God is a God of justice, which means his people have to be people of justice. And that's biblical justice and what we find in the scriptures when we talk about justice. Here's the short version before I jump into the five woes. The gospel demands not only vertical reconciliation with God, but horizontal, horizontal reconciliation with man. The gospel, it's self, the gospel of reconciliation, the gospel of redemption, the gospel of renewal. It demands not only vertical rep reconciliation with God, but also horizontal reconciliation with man. It accomplishes both. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to renew all things, to make all things right. It's both. We see Paul say it this way in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. He says this, in him, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And you're supposed to ask, what's the purpose? What's the mystery of your will? This is it, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. 
You could say that's the purpose of the gospel, to unite all things, whether vertically or horizontally, to God in Christ, things in heaven and things on the earth. Is everybody with me at this point? You with me? Okay. Now let's jump in to the five woes that God is going to offer to the Chaldeans, to those who are the wicked, the unjust. Five woes. He's going to offer the woe to the extortioner, woe to the greedy and the arrogant, woe to those who build on bloodshed, and woe to the drunk and violent. And one more, I almost forgot, woe to the makers of idols. Look with me in verse 6. This is what it says. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, here's the woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Here's woe number one. Woe to the extortioner. Woe to the extortioner. The extortioner is the person who holds a position of power and they take advantage of others unjustly for their own personal good. You could say they take advantage of the disadvantaged. I think about this in our own city and in our own context post-hurricane. Some of the contractors that have come to town since the hurricane with tree services or various other services gouging people incorrectly and improperly, unjustly, not worth their wages in a correct wage and taking advantage of the disadvantaged. That is injustice. It's injustice and God wouldn't stand for it. I talked to someone just a few weeks ago and they had a, a tree and, and it, it, was a, it wasn't an unbelievably huge tree, but it was a large tree and the tree had fallen down in their yard and someone quoted them $10,000 to remove one tree and they paid it. $10,000. That, that is a moment, a microcosm of extortion, of injustice, of someone taking advantage of the disadvantaged. It's taking advantage. And God would say, woe to you. God would say, woe to you for taking advantage of other people. Charging people unnecessary rates. Unnecessarily, perhaps, high interest rates in some situations. Some people in disadvantaged communities who are taken advantage of just to get their check cashed. It's unjust. It's unjust and it should stop. God doesn't stand for that. It's completely unjust. This is the woe to the extortioner. Proverbs 16.8 would say it this way. Better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Better is a little. You don't need it. Don't need to take advantage of other people. Better is little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. The woe to the extortioner. Then the second one, verse 9. He says, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. To set his nest on high, metaphorically speaking. To be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Here's the second woe, the woe to the greedy and the arrogant. Woe to the greedy and the arrogant. This is the wealthy person who doesn't share and practice generosity to others in need. This is the wealthy person. This is the person that has received blessing. This is the person that is in a place of blessing. And rather than use your blessing as a conduit to bless other people, you build your nest high and far away from as much harm as possible in the world. 
And God would say, woe to that. Your resources that God would say, I have given you, you're hoarding them from yourselves, for yourself and using them for yourself rather than to use the resources that I have given you to bless other people. You could say it this way. God blesses you not primarily to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving. What if the first thought that we had whenever we get a promotion and whenever we get an increase in our salary wasn't, man, I wonder what kind of car I can get next. I wonder what kind of house I can get next. Was I wonder who I can bless next. I wonder who I could bless next. Acts 4, we see the story of the early church just after the time of Christ, the early decades after the time of Jesus. Acts chapter 4 specifically, verses 34 through 35 says that there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. That's varsity level right there, you know. You owned houses or lands. And you're like, I got 10 acres down the road, but we're not using it. Why don't I sell it, and then we can give it to the church, and then you just use it however you want. It's pretty varsity level. It doesn't mean that you can't be a good steward and have investments and recognize where, what you're doing with your wealth and capitalizing on your wealth. But your wealth primarily does not exist for your own good, but for others and for God's kingdom, especially if you are a believer. I heard a story um, of someone in our church uh, recently well-to-do, God has blessed them significantly. Um, they have the resources to be able to do what they would want pretty much any way that they would want. And they had a little bit of a nest egg that was set aside for an emergency fund in case they were affected by the hurricane. And so they had those resources set aside to be able to help make sure that they could pay their deductible and get their house back in order in case, in case if there was significant damage. And by God's grace, they weren't affected by the hurricane. They weren't affected at all. They were almost completely untouched. They didn't even have to file an insurance claim. And what did they do with the resources? They decided that they would use whatever they set aside to bless other people that were in need because of the hurricane. That's amazing. That's radical. That's, that's the gospel. That's God changing your heart and seeing your resources and what God has given you, not necessarily for your own good and your own well-being, for the good and the well-being of the people that are around you. And God would say to the wealthy person and the greedy person who isn't a conduit but is a dam of his resources, he would say, woe to you. Woe to you. Verse 12, third woe. How many of y'all are like, this is heavy? It is heavy. Verse, verse 12, this is the third woe. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. It's getting ready to get heavier. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. You built a city through bloodshed. You built a city by taking advantage of other people and harming other people. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Which means you better believe the glory of the Lord is going to come full force on the earth. Woe to him who builds a town or a city through bloodshed and taking advantage of other people. A couple things that I have to say that I feel like are pertinent for this situation. Woe to those who build on bloodshed. I think about our culture 
I think about our country, I think about our nation, and a couple things that come to mind about being a nation with bloodshed, two things, one is abortion and the other is slavery. I understand that these are unbelievably complicated issues, and I know that there's tons of policies that we would need to get in order to make sure that every situation was reconciled. I understand that. My main agenda tonight isn't to give you policy, but is to give you principle. And this is a very complicated issue, specifically speaking of abortion. I know that many of you in the room even have been affected by that. But we live in a culture that currently practices shedding the blood of the innocent. Shedding the blood of the innocent. All humans are created in the image of God. And scripture teaches that God knows us even in the womb and before the womb, based on Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, and that he has a plan for our life even before we are born. That means every single, even in the womb, that God has named you and he has a plan for your life, that you have a destiny even when you are in the womb, that God knew you. He knew that you were going to be born. He knew that you were going to be conceived and he had already thought up and planned out the plan for your life and the destiny for your life. And we live in a culture that is currently murdering millions of, of children, which is tragedy and injustice. And I know that there are some situations in which people in that situation are victims of injustice themselves. And so here's what I say. Why doesn't the church step up and let's be the difference maker? You're in, a, you're, in, you're in a harsh situation. You're in an impoverished community. Don't have the ability, don't have the resources to take, take care of somebody. We do. We're the church. We have unbelievable resources. And guess what? I'm not only going to... Um, yell about this, I'm actually going to sign up for adoption. And we'll take them. We'll take them into our homes. We'll take them into our families. And we can be the change. And we can, we can make a difference. We are the people of justice. And we can step up to the plate. Even when people are in violent and unjust situations, we can step up. We can step up. And so we want to be a church that is a church of underprivileged youth and persons of need. It sounds like a great Sounds like a great solution to me. And can I just say, for those of you who are in the room that feel unbelievably guilty right now, you've participated in one way, shape, or form yourself or a family member in abortion. Um, unbelievable guilt, I can't even imagine. Studies show that most people that walk through this process don't walk away with freedom, but walk away with guilt. And can I say to you tonight that you can find forgiveness in Christ that you can find forgiveness in Christ, that there isn't a sin that you could commit that Jesus' blood doesn't cover. And he'll forgive you tonight. I don't know if you've ever asked for forgiveness. Jesus will forgive you. And we know that everyone who is forgiven in Christ, we know and we believe based on Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Which means you can walk in forgiveness and freedom and whatever you have done, whatever has been done to you, Jesus loves you, he'll receive you, he'll welcome you, and he will forgive you. As well, when I think about our country and I think about bloodshed and a city built on blood, or you could even say a country that has built, been built on blood, we live in a country that was built on the backbone of slavery. The tragedy and injustice of slavery, and we're only a few generations removed from slavery in America. I read a book recently of a man 
who is a little bit of an older man, and he writes in the book talking about his grandfather was a slave. That isn't that far removed. It's only a few generations actually removed, and much of the demise of our country is we are reaping the benefits, reaping rather the consequences of what we have sowed for centuries. You can't sow injustice for centuries and think that you're going to be fine and dandy. And we live in a culture and we live in a country that is still responding from the effects of what we have done for centuries. And I know that some people want to wish it away or say that it isn't true or say that, man, they really, it really wasn't that bad. It was just a product of our culture. Everybody was doing it. It's not that significant. They didn't really believe that. It was just a way that they could help and serve and employ people. Alexander Stevens, the Confederate vice president, he wrote this in his address famously on March 21st, 1861, his cornerstone speech. And he said this about the Confederacy. He said, its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. This is our new government, is the first in the history of the world based upon this great physical, philosophical, and moral truth. That is so unjust. It just, it isn't even funny. To think that entire cultures stood on that as if it were the truth. That entire societies operated according to that reality. And you want to know why we, have the, why we have the issues that we have in our culture? That's why. It's one of the reasons why Stevens, unfortunately, also would claim science and the Bible to defend his views. It's unbelievable. And so to the person, to the society, to the system that takes advantage of people, that uses bloodshed and harming other people to build your own self and to build your own name and to build your own platform or whatever it is, woe to you. Woe to you. God is against that on every form, on every level. Woe to you. He goes on, the fourth woe, verse 15. He would say this, woe to him who makes his neighbor drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Take a few drinks for somebody to have a few drinks for somebody in a situation in order to try to take advantage of them. Verse 16, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Here's the fourth woe. Woe to the drunk and the violent. Woe to the drunk and the violent. God rebukes those who not only influence others but also force others into a state of vulnerability, force others into a state of drunkenness or debauchery or violence, taking advantage for the people that are around or taking advantage of the people that are around you in order to see their nakedness. We live in a culture that makes a mockery of drunkenness and getting wasted. We laugh about it and joke about it like it isn't that big of a deal while people are being taken advantage of and treating Im, treated improperly because of these situations. And it's darkness. It's darkness. What he's referring to 
we could correlate in modern times would be similar to human trafficking. Human trafficking, putting women and children in a situation that is a vulnerable situation and then capturing them, trafficking them and bringing them into an industry and taking advantage of them for your own good to see their own nakedness. So be similar to rape. You're in a situation with someone that is a romantic other. You push the pedal too far. You take it to the limits. You take advantage of the situation. Nobody else is around. You don't listen to what the other person is, is saying. You put something in their drink. You do X, Y, or Z. You take advantage of them to see their own nakedness, to take them into a position of vulnerability for your own good and for your own pleasure. Woe to you. Woe to you. This would be true of the porn industry as well. Many of us think that the porn industry, well, it's just all these people that are glamorous and famous, and they just want to make money, and so they do videos. That's not the case. People that are in that industry, specifically women, are those that have been abused as children and taken advantage of and drugged and addicted and led into an industry that takes advantage of them to see their own nakedness. And God would say, woe to you. Woe. The wrath of God is against that. That is unjust. It is unrighteous. And we live in a culture that's affected by this. Everybody in the room is aware of the Me Too movement that has happened over the last year or two. And regardless of whatever you believe on that or the impressions you might have, the reality is that people are taken advantage of in our, in our culture and in our society. People are taken advantage of, and the church has to be an organization, a community of people who fight with Jesus for justice like lions in our culture. Fight with him. And rather than using people, we uphold people in the image of God in which he has created them. And then here's the fifth and the final woe. If that wasn't enough, here's one more. Verse 18 of Habakkuk chapter 2, it says this. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Here's the fifth and the final woe. The woe to the maker of idols. Woe to the maker of idols. Now, you and I, we don't have an issue. We don't, we don't have a problem with idols, right? I mean, we are so more progressive than those people that have issues with idols. We don't make, we don't make idols. Well, the, the reality is, is, is we may or, or may not make figurines or actual physical objects in our homes in which we worship as idols, but I can guarantee you that you and I have a problem with idolatry. Idolatry is fundamentally the exchange of anything with the place of God. God is in his proper place as God, and any time we invert that or exchange him with anything else, then that is idolatry, which means anything and everything could really be an idol. This table could be an idol. This sermon could be an idol. This building could be an idol. Your glasses could be an idol. Your car could be an idol. The person sitting beside you could be an idol. Your bank account could be an idol. Your stock could be an idol. Anything and everything could be an idol. All you have to do is just put it in the place of God, and then you feel 
meaningful, you feel significant, you feel worthy, you feel valuable, you feel beautiful because of that thing, and you've exchanged God with that idol. Now, here's, here's what the woe of idolatry that God is offering to the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are a nation. They are the Babylonians. They are a group of people. They have a national construct. They have something that ties them together, and God holistically, stay with me here, he holistically confronts their idol together. God offers a woe to their idolatry holistically as a people. And here's the reality. Humanity has always had an idol of nationalism. Finding your identity and meaning and worth in a nation, in a people, in a kingdom. And the gospel confronts our kingdom identity and provides you with a new kingdom identity in Christ. That's why Jesus talks about the kingdom all the time. We live in a culture in which we find kingdom identity as Americans. We find identity in our ethnicity. We find our identity in our political affiliation. We find identity uh, in our social, socioeconomic status, our class. When we do that, that is idolatry. Aligning ourselves more closely to the kingdom of this world than the kingdom of God. And for generations, Christians have been brainwashed to believe that our ethnicity, uh, politics, or class has the ultimate power in our lives and in our country. That's not the case. God is creating a kingdom people for himself, a new kingdom, a new nation, a new community, a new family for himself, which means we find ourselves in a nation. We find ourselves in a country, and you can love that country. You can be happy for that country. You can be sad for that country. You can vote. You can participate. You can put a flag in your yard. You can do whatever you want to do as long as that national identity doesn't trump God's national identity in your life and God's kingdom and what God has called you to do. And some of you are like, man, this is such a political church, man. I'm never coming back here. This, this church is so political. I mean, could you believe everything that he has talked? Here's what I'll say to you. We are not a political church. We are a biblical church. We're a biblical church. We don't do it perfectly. Ten years down the road, I'm going to be like, man, I was such an idiot about that. We don't do it perfectly but we are doing our best to be a biblical church. Now, biblical principles have political implications, which means when we talk about Scripture and when we talk about God's design and God's ideas and God's word for our lives, it will have implications into politics around us. Regardless if we lived here or if we lived in China, it would impact politics. But we first and foremost are a biblical church, which means that we have to Spend our energy and our time making sure that we are God's church, not America's church. That we are God's church. At the end of the day, we don't stand before America. We stand before God and have to give account to what he calls us to do. And we don't follow an elephant. We don't follow a donkey. We follow a lamb, and his name is Jesus Christ. That's who we follow. We follow Jesus. Now, here's, here's how I'll end. I'll end with this. God offers woes to the oppressors. He offers woes to the unjust. And I'll say this before we get on our high horse and walk out of here, all pious. You and I are the greatest oppressors in the history of the world. 
our wickedness and our injustice against God himself. It was you and me that sent God to the cross. Make no mistake. It was you and I that thought that we could be God, thought that we knew how to live our own lives, that we could do the way that we wanted to do it. We could stand in the face of God and live however we wanted to live. Just injustice before God, the God of the universe. And we killed God. God went to the cross in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for your oppression and your injustice. And on the cross, he sacrificed himself to pay the penalty of justice, to conquer justice forever, to take care of every injustice that you had ever committed. He took it on himself and he went to the cross for you. And you tonight, in Jesus Christ, are a recipient of the greatest justice in the history of the world, the justice of Jesus Christ himself. And Paul David Tripp would say it this way, from the moment of his, first, his very first breath, Jesus marched towards the cross because God is unwilling to compromise his justice in order to deliver his forgiveness. On the cross, forgiveness, even speaking words of forgiveness, as he hung in torture, God would not close his eyes to humanity's incalculable violations of his just requirements in order to extend to us his forgiving and accepting grace. You and I, the reason that we are people of justice is because we have a God of justice. And when we have committed the greatest injustices in the world, God gave us forgiveness. He stepped into your life. He stepped into the situation. He rewrote the story. He rewrote the narrative. And when everything was going crazy, when everything was going awry, he stepped in and he reconciled it to himself. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of of grace, and the gospel of justice. Amen? Amen. Father, we worship you tonight, and we thank you for what you have done in our lives, in our place, when we didn't deserve it, when we couldn't earn it. We praise you tonight that we stand in the place of justice because of what Jesus has done for us. So God, we worship you tonight. We ask that you would help us to be a community not only of grace, but also of justice, that you would allow us to be a people of justice, that we fight for it like Jesus, our lion and our lamb. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do this in us. This is a daunting task, Lord. This is an insurmountable obstacle that we have in front of us. And so we need your spirit to do it. God, for our hearts that may be stressed in the moment for our preferences and our comforts that may have been challenged tonight. I pray that you would allow us to relax and breathe a deep breath and to recognize that it's okay and that you're working, that you're doing your will in and through us. And we can hold on even through the challenging moments and the challenging times because you've got a, a plan that you're working in us. So Lord, we love you. We say this in Christ's name. Amen.